0: This is Uli Appelbaum, author of the Brand Positioning Workbook, a simple how-to guide to more compelling brand positionings faster, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host,
1: Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by forbes and linkedin amongst others don't worry about taking notes you can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com and since i get to read every book featured on the show if i can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource i know of for whatever challenge you're facing send me a linkedin connection invite with a message that you're a listener and i will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction my name again is douglas Burdett. this episode is sponsored by by marketing architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Uli Applebaum to talk about his book, The Brand Positioning Workbook, a simple how-to guide to more compelling brand positionings. Faster. Uli Applebaum is an award-winning marketing and brand strategy consultant. He has held senior strategy roles in Europe and the U.S. at some of the leading advertising agencies in the world, including BBDO, Leo Burnett, Fallon Worldwide, and Sapient Nitro, before starting his own brand research and strategy firm, First the Trousers, Then the Shoes. He has contributed to seven EFI Awards for Marketing Effectiveness and an Advertising Research Federation Ogilvy Award for Excellence in Research. And his insights and strategies have helped build brands including Wrigley, Mars, Harley-Davidson, Hallmark, Nestle, Procter & Gamble, Chrysler, Unilever, Hallmark, Symantec, Siemens, and Land of Lakes, to name just a few. He is also the creator of the Positioning Development Method Cards and aha the ultimate insight generation toolkit which helps marketers think smarter he has blogged extensively for the huffington post is a contributor to various trade publications in the u.s and europe and was a member of the practitioner council of the american marketing association and interesting fact he lives in minneapolis was born in germany lived in Africa his first 10 years, then lived in Brussels and moved back to Germany when he was 25. Uli, congratulations on the brand positioning workbook and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Douglas, and thank you for having me on your show. Very excited to be here.
1: Well, uh, it's it's my pleasure, and I ju- first have to ask you, your company is called first the trousers, then the shoes, and yes, I, was, I was really kind of uh, tickled, because that's often what TSA says to me before I <laughs> board a plane.
0: See, and there's a logic behind that, so I don't care if you call my company first the flip-flop, then the shorts, or, you know, first the, I don't know, sneakers, then the jogging pants Uh Um, it's simply uh, uh, two thoughts behind it one is strategy first that's what I do it's like you know think about what you want to do before you actually do it Mm -hmm. and the second thing is simply I look at strategy as a creative process so I didn't want to call myself Applebaum Brand Consulting you know or something like that is I believe that um, um, uh, developing a strategy is a creative problem solving process and I wanted to reflect that in my name so uh, first the trousers then the shoes came out of a drunken brainstorm with a friend, and stuck the following morning um, during the hangover phase. Uh-huh. And uh, I think one thing of the things that I really adore is um, when my clients introduce me to their colleagues, you know, and say, "This is Uli from Consulting." firm first the trousers, then the shoes, just to to look at the the face of people um, in the room is just priceless. So um, <laughs> right. um, that that alone makes the 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 name worth it.
1: Oh, great! So it has to do with getting dressed
0: it uh, well the funny thing see, is because tsa launched...
1: they want me to take my pants off and then my shoes i it, i don't know maybe it's just me i don't know
0: yes it's it's the other way around so it's not getting undressed It's getting dressed now the ah. funny thing is when i launched the company uh, douglas i literally got so many requests from companies in asia in pakistan offering to um, mass-produce textile products for me. So like jeans (laughs) and stuff like that. Um, And I tried to explain to them that's not really the industry I'm in, but um, uh, that luckily stopped after a couple of years. I think people did their research and realized maybe he's not selling jeans, he's uh, selling consulting services.
1: (laughs) Great, great. Although, you know, any company that contacts you could be a a prospect, so, you know. That is
0: very true. Something to keep in mind.
1: Yeah, (laughs) so I lived in Germany for three Years years ago, and very excited to be able to in, to interview you, who is originally from Germany. But you didn't really. I guess you you've lived there less than you've lived ever, other places. But you are the third author out of over three hundred I've interviewed who uh, was was uh, from Germany. So awesome! And uh, just so you know, for all my listeners out there in Germany, my favorite German word is toll. <laughs> I just love that word. And just so you know, uh, when I lived in Germany, I did extensive unpaid product testing of as much of the German beer as I possibly could.
0: That is a must, yes. Yeah. That's an immersion into the culture, of course, yes.
1: Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate you <laughs> saying it that way. But it was great. And actually, I have to say, there is a marketing professor in Germany at Reutlingen University, who's a yeah. listener, Professor Dr. Johanna Bath. And she is actually having me speak to her MBA students uh, in October of this year if I promise not to speak German.
0: Oh, funny. That's awesome. That's great.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited about that. Looking forward to speaking to them. And uh, my German is uh, what you might call beer hall German. Uh So I uh, had never studied it in school, but I picked up a lot. And then once I got into the beer halls, my German improved. Dramatically, the truth is, my German didn't improve, but my perception of my German improved, and so and that's, that's
0: all that matters. And my wife has the same after a third wine of glass; her German becomes almost perfect. She she thinks so. Um, uh, that that's totally understandable. Okay,
1: so you, yeah, my, your wife and I are of, of, of like minds. So, so this is a short book. It's only about a hundred pages, and of course, it sent me to the emergency room because I overdosed on practicality. It is it is so. <laughs> (laughs) so damn practical. I can't stand it. I marked it up. And then you've got these cards that go with it that Mm -hmm. I thank you for sending those along. I used those while I was reading the book and having a lot of fun. But then when I got to the emergency room, the uh, doctor said, you know, what happened? And I said, I'm overdosing on practicality. And so he said, there's only one cure. And he handed me a 400-page marketing theory book. (laughs) And he said, there is no – there's nothing practical in this book. It's the only thing that's going to save you. So – there you go. Let me uh, mention, though, the one thing I want to talk about, and we're going to talk about it last, mm-hmm. it's, uh, which actually comes towards the end of your book, <laughs> a, big, yeah. a big finish, the nine most common mistakes when positioning a brand. <laughs> it's great. Mm-hmm. And I kind of laughed, but then I kind of cried, too, because <laughs> I've been through some of that and uh, was, was very familiar with that. Let me just read a brief excerpt from the beginning page six, uh, who should read this book? This book is written for everyone involved in the development of brand positioning platforms, product concepts, and messaging strategies. Everyone who wants to create or contribute to more inspiring, more differentiated, and harder-working brand positioning platforms, ultimately achieving better business results. And for those who want to spend less time doing so. In fact, both junior and senior marketing professionals will find it useful, including brand managers and CMOs, Communication professionals, market researchers, strategists, and consultants. Last but not least, this book will be relevant and valuable to marketing, business, and communication students as it will easily add 10 to 15 years of experience to your positioning, development, and creative problem skills. Mm -hmm. So then I want to jump to one other thing from page 17 and ask you to explain what the hell you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You write this book is for those who'd rather build the juice cleanse than the lemonade stand. <laughs> Go!
0: <laughs> All right. So so in a podcast uh, that doesn't have any videos, it's it's a bit of a challenge. But um, one picture I use a lot in my work is um, a, a cartoon uh, drawn by uh, Paul Noth. And what you see is you, you basically see a, a cartoon where you see two kids uh that built a lemonade stand, um, one on the left, one on the right. And the one on the left is exactly what you expect, right? You have a, he has a little sign that says a lemonade stand, 20 cents a glass. And the poor kid is sitting there all by themselves at the table with no customer in front of him. And the kid on the right has um, the same lemonade stand sitting in front of the same house, but he on his sign wrote, lemonade cleanse, $20 a glass and, and Nolt was, um, Noth was north was smart enough to realize that is where the people line up um, in front of him to buy to buy his lemonade clan for twenty dollars and I think that's for me a brilliant example of a brand positioning platform where you basically have a generic offering a lemonade stand which we all understand which we all know which always participated or sponsored as parents but the kid on the right really added two brand associations one is it's not lemonade it's a lemonade it cleansed so all of a sudden it all becomes about a health benefit that also has sort of like thirst quenching benefit Mm -hmm. and the second brilliant um, association he created was it's not a 20 cents a glass uh, product it's a 20 dollar a glass product so all of a sudden by creating this association of ultra-premiumness, either you believe, okay, well, because it's so expensive it must be good or it helps justify the cleanse benefit. If it's cleansing, there must be some, you know, special ingredient in it um, and and therefore justify the price of $20. Right,
1: and maybe an experience. And
0: maybe an experience as well. So same offering um, from moved from a generic platform, tri- triggering generic brand associations, or oh, my food product tastes yummy, um, <laughs> to something truly distinctive by simply adding two uh, different distinctive brand associations. So I have this uh, cartoon as a big poster in my office, and I'm proud to say that I even purchased um, from Paul North the rights to use the cartoon in the book. I wanted to do things properly, uh-huh. um, and and so that's that's where this analogy comes from. So quoting it without context wouldn't make sense, but as you read it on page 17, you've seen it already on page 7, and it makes all of a sudden sense. Yes,
1: very beautifully done. Now, do I have permission to scan that cartoon and put it on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, or would I get in trouble with you or the Uh, cartoonist?
0: They've always been very cooperative and very supportive, so I I don't think you'll get into trouble by doing this. Okay, um, well, I'll I'll do
1: that for folks uh, who are… Buy the book, <laughs> but then you can look at this cartoon. It's brilliant. The other thing, it's funny in this cartoon is that uh, it's all adults lining up <laughs> to, yes. buy, to buy very the twenty dollar a glass lemonade cleanse. So very true. And yeah. and
0: when you think it's not that far stretch, right? When you think about the cosmetic industry, a jar of rejuvenation cream for one hundred fifty dollars—that's exactly what it is. Uh, you know, it's it's hope in a bottle at a horrendous price that makes you believe maybe maybe I'm going to look six months younger than my 75 years old.
1: Yeah, and I've often heard that Charles Revson, the founder of Revlon, said, I don't sell makeup, I sell hope.
0: That's exactly right, and it works.
1: Yes. So, Uli, let's get some definitions out of the way, okay? Yeah. And these are a definition, and everyone probably has their own idea and I think these things we're going to talk about here are very, very misunderstood. First off, what is a brand?
0: A uh, great question, simple but very powerful question. And I think the answer to that question determines already the quality of the thinking that will come out of this, right? Um, the way I describe it is really as the sum of all the associations consumers have about your offering. And it's very simple. So it's a bundle of associations that are connected to your offering. And while it's very simple, what I like about it is it reflects the way people um absorb content, learn new information. You know, I take a piece of content, connect it to what I know already, and, and build these networks of, of meaning in my brain. Um, and and so this definition reflects the way people um form impression and perceptions about brands. Um, that's what I like about this simple definition. I haven't invented it, but to your point, there are hundreds of definitions about brands out there. It almost feels like that if you're a brand strategist, a respectable brand strategist, you have to come up with your own clever <laughs> definition. But I, I have the opposite point of view. Is like I stick to the basics. And uh, um, what I liked about it is mix... It makes the process actionable, right? You understand, as a marketer, your job is to build associations. That's your role. That's why you spend millions and millions of dollars. Um, and, and frankly, it, it doesn't go beyond that. Of course, it's more sophisticated, but at the core, that's really what you do.
1: Yes, and longtime listeners will know that I don't. Eh, I probably don't have as many brand books on the show as I, I guess, I should by podcast law by marketing podcast law, <laughs> because too many of them. Well, enough of them still think that the brand is something the marketing department controls. Mm -hmm. And I noticed you said yours is a brand is the sum of all the associations consumers have about your offering. Hey, wait a minute, where's the logo? (laughs) But you also mentioned uh, two other authors I've had the distinct honor of interviewing. David Ocker is one. He defines a brand as the set of assets and liabilities linked to a brand's name and symbol that adds to or subtracts from the value provided by a product or service to a firm and or that firm's customer. And then Seth Godin defines a brand as the set of expectations, memories, and relationships that, taken together, account for a consumer's decision to choose one product or service over another one. And then, again, you know, like you're you're standing on the shoulders of giants here, you include my favorite one, which is from Amazon founder Jeff Bezos, Mm -hmm. who said a brand is what other people say about you when you are not in the room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I love it. I love it. Okay, next, uh, this is turning into a game show, but next definition question, mm-hmm. very important. What is brand positioning?
0: So again, um, you know, often in the industry, we try to sound smarter than we actually are. Oh
1: Yeah, I know, gave that up years ago, but I know <laughs> it's, it was and, no, and I could just couldn't do it. Yeah.
0: No, I know it's exhausting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, but so, so for me, the posi- the definition of a brand positioning is really capturing the desired associations you want to connect with your offering, right? So as a, as a strategist, as a marketing person, you need to understand what do consumers currently associate with my brand and what are the associations I want them to associate with my offering in order to have my brand grow and succeed. And the brand positioning statement captures these desired associations. That's really it for me at the end of the day. You can, you can, you know, translate that into 26 different format and frameworks and stuff like that. But at the end of the day is tell me what you want to associate with your offering to make it appealing to your consumer segments. And that's really it.
1: Yes. And there's a great. Uh, One of many, quote, from uh, page 15, you write, The general trap to avoid when summarizing a brand's position through a framework is to add too many elements. Mm -hmm. The core guiding principles here are clarity, focus, and selective choices. Or, as marketing guru Michael Porter famously said, strategy is about making choices. It's about deliberately choosing to be different which needs to be, and then you go on to write, which needs to be reflected in your brand positioning framework. So on page 16, you write that developing a brand positioning is a creative problem-solving exercise. And I'd like to quote from pages 16 and 17. You write, a marketer once was looking into the positioning of one of its butter brands. The brand team had come to the conclusion, based on the research they had done, that consumers wanted butter that tastes good and is healthy. So they decided to position their brand around these two key consumer benefits, or brand associations. Logical, consumer-focused, and supported by data. Yet, also category generic and not at all differentiating it failed to tell consumers why they should choose this specific brand over all the other healthy, great-tasting brands out there. Mm-hmm. You go on to write, this approach, and it is very common in the marketing industry, focuses on the obvious, what do consumers want, and the superficial rather than on trying to find an original and previously unknown solution to their problem it's focusing on the left side of the lemonade stand picture back to that picture so you you go on to write that a, uh two brands uh lure Park and Kerrygold, had a much smarter and more successful way to position uh their butter brands can you mm-hmm. tell us about what they did
0: Absolutely. So, um, um, so Kerrygold, for example, which I think might be better known here in the U.S., I think Lurpak Park initially started in the U.K. and then expanded globally. But Kerrygold is clearly associated with its um, um, Irish heritage, right? Um, and when you, when you look into this brand more in detail, you see the richness of the, of the association. So first of all, it's, it's what's called European butter, which means it has a higher fat content, um, which makes, which gives it um, properties like better for baking, easier to spread on bread, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the first, the first learning for me was they're really, you know, the the, the core of your brand position comes from the product itself. In this case, um, um, uh, European style butter. But then what they did is they really leveraged and created this association around their origin in Ireland. Uh, you know. Green hills of juicy grass, happy cows frolicking on the fields, um, mm-hmm. you know, and feeding from that grass. Um, they added to the brand also a slightly quirky, you could, I don't know if it's an Irish personality, but it fits the Irish sort of like persona that you may think about. Um, and really allowed them to differentiate themselves. So from uh, tasting good and being healthy to, nope, this is for all the goodness from Ireland mm-hmm. um, that um, that allow it to send out. Now, there are also some brand assets like the gold, the green, and sort of like um, um, visual elements that help the brand differentiate. But that's what they did. So they really created a world of where this butter comes from that really taps into a positive sentiment in the U.S. about the Irish uh, origin in Irish culture, you know, when mm-hmm. you got St. Patrick's Day, those are all huge um, phenomenons.
1: <laughs> and it works for Irish spring deodorant soap and Lucky Charms.
0: It, that's exactly right. Um, and With apologies
1: pro- to my listeners in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, you know, it, it, I find it funny when you work on a global scale is you cannot help but, but throw around stereotypes around different cultures uh, with the sense of humor. Oh, you know. Um, but the reality is, there's always a touch of truth in those stereotypes, um, uh, which I don't always think, think are fascinating. Hmm. Um, and yes, and the, the second brand is Lurpak, um, and again, you could position it as good taste and healthy. But what they did, which which um, I thought was brilliant, was they focused on foodies, on people who like to prepare food themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, who select the special olive oil, who you know go to the farmers market to buy fresh ingredients, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. And they really position themselves as the champion of good food. So, yes, it's still healthy, and yes, it's still tasty. But by positioning themselves as champion of good food amongst this foodie segment, so basically it becomes the ingredients to use when you cook as a foodie, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, very different from, you know, tastes good and is healthy. <laughs> and those brands, um, as I said, I don't have the latest data, but have been growing globally at a way faster rate than the category in general. And those are, for me, the the Cleanse, uh, the Lemonade Cleanse um, um, examples, how through smart thinking, smart associations with a product product that could be generic, you really differentiate yourself, justify a price premium for your brand, and create loyalty. So we are, for example, a big carry uh, Kerrygold household here, because once you've tried Kerrygold, everything after that just doesn't taste as good, mm. as, as sad as it uh, sounds.
1: Interesting. So there are problems probably some listeners out there marketers who are thinking i i don't i'm awesome i don't need creative problem solving tools <laughs> remind folks why marketers need creative problem solving tools
0: Well, whether you want it or not, Douglas, is we all have biases, right? Yes. Um, We all have – and biases are not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think now they are portrayed as something bad. Um, They are bad in the context of innovation. but
1: but, Let me interrupt. I don't think they're bad, but I think they're a major blind spot. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Um, they allow you to live more comfortably, you know, without having to think through every decision to draw conclusions based on limited facts that uh, allow you to avoid over analyzing everything. Um, and, and you see a typical a, a bunch of them, right? In the world of marketing, you have like the, um, sort of like the personal biases on, um, you know, I've been in the business for 15 years. I've had, you know, five or six great successes in building brands by using this specific methodology. So I'm going to replicate this methodology with <laughs> every new brand I come
1: to and- Yeah, and as a matter of fact, I think there are a lot of uh, CEOs out there or head of sales, older folks, uh, who may have come up when all you had to do was cold call. That's make exactly things happen. Right. <laughs> No. <laughs> and they don't understand that it, it's different now than it was. Certain things are different now than, than they were uh, in the past. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth. And it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why... Marketing architects flipped the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called all-inclusive TV, how booming brands are reimagining TV advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. I want to get into these biases because I think that's extremely important to remind folks that they have them, but you mentioned that on your blog, the most read article is seven ways to improve your creative problem-solving skills, which for me uh, tells me there's clearly a demand for people trying to solve problems creatively.
0: There is a huge demand, and I think my next book is going to be about that specific topic, um, oh. and and it's sort of like a disconnect right because we all cherish creativity and innovation right it's sort of like a, the globe it's sort of like the, the the concept that you put on a pedestal mm-hmm. but but i think the reality is one we are not wired for innovation and creativity our brain is not wired for that our brain is wired for the familiar um and second um um innovation and and creative thinking uh, takes us out of our comfort zone right yes and we don't want to be out of our comfort zone if i tell you douglas go and talk to your ceo uh, build a case and tell him that you need 50 million dollars to launch a new brand that in the mid in a taking an approach that we've never used before um, without not being 100% sure whether it's going to succeed because it doesn't fulfill the template we usually fulfill. Mm -hmm. Try try to do that. I think 99% of the marketers would say, you know what, I think I'm on vacation during that meeting, or I think I have something else to do. I'm going to send my junior assistant to present that case because there is a big risk involved with that.
1: Yeah, they they would probably want me to go get drug tested.
0: That's exactly right. And so, so, having the guts to stand up and say, you know, also talk to a group of 10 people in a conference room, I think I disagree with everyone else. We should look at the problem from a different perspective, is not something most people would feel comfortable doing.
1: Yes. Um, You know, it's interesting, the the creativity and the innovation. I've had uh, three books on the show over the years about creativity and two on innovation. And they are both, they're they're all... um, they all fit hand and glove together because it. they all dispel the notion of sitting under a tree or waiting for lightning <laughs> to somehow lightning in a bottle. It's about following a system and a process and actually having uh, some um, parameters. Now, if you do come out with another book, I know this guy that interviews authors of <laughs> – marketing and sales books and he's i'll be honest he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer but his guests are phenomenal I, I can hook you up so
0: i think i know who you're talking about but the problem douglas is it took me 20 years to write this book so <laughs> i hope your podcast will still be still be um, uh, uh, alive in 20 years then i'll be definitely knocking at your door
1: well uli you just gave me a long-term goal <laughs> and, I, and for that i thank you sir So, let's talk about these biases, just to remind folks what they are. Oh, and I can't believe you only put it in like two or three pages. Folks, this is the most super concentrated book, but you've got personal biases, corporate biases, if I'm pronouncing that right, having trouble with my English sometime, category biases, and cultural biases. Walk us through what some of those are, or perhaps talk to us about some of the ones that are the most glaring that you run into most frequently.
0: Yeah, so, so, one that really annoys me, we'll talk about that in a second. If you go to the, the personal biases, right, is I drive better than everyone else. Um, that is a well, you know, or I look better than everyone else, uh-huh. or I am uh, better at deductive thinking than anyone else. Um That is a very typical bias most of us human have. And frankly, I look better than the majority of people out there as well. So it's like, you know, I think um uh, it's called the Lake Wobegon effect, you know, where we're oh, right. just a little bit, little bit better, a little bit smarter, a little bit better at parking your car, parallel parking your car than everyone else, which means also you think your ideas are better than everyone else, right? So we have both an idea on how to solve a problem. Our respective attitude would be, yeah, but um, I think mine is better than yours. You know, mm-hmm. I don't really hear you, but I think mine is better than yours. And and building on that as well is this notion of um, the confirmation bias, right? I only look for data points and information that supports my point of view, um, mm. and it's a very subtle but very um, uh, powerful bias. So you know, you have, can have this conversation in the context of a business meeting, saying like, "There is a data point." That doesn't stand that doesn't fit with everything else or that stand does that that does stand out and in the majority of the case we get oh yeah that's an anomaly we're going to ignore that whereas that is actually a data point you want to look at because it's trying to tell you something that is inconsistent with your normal beliefs and and therefore potentially as a solution to um, uh, an know inno- leading to an innovative solution so those are all the per- personal biases we have but the one that drives me the most nuts is um, what we call what I call here the cultural bias I don't know if it's typically it's if it's the right uh, uh, word for it but it's this notion of I project my own value system onto my marketing world and the best expression of that is the brand purpose and the f- frenzy and the, the the inflation and overuse of the word brand purpose uh,
1: yes in, yes in
0: the last few years and what I've noticed is a lot of young marketers, especially, want everything to be a brand purpose, right? Um, which, I in some cases, that might be the best solution to drive the biggest growth for your brand. I don't disagree with that at all. But simply coming to the conclusion, uh, the solution to your problem, which, by the way, I haven't really analyzed, is a brand purpose, is what really drives me crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. um, because it's really, I want to make the world a better place. I work for a chemical company, so I'm going to project my desire to make the world a better place to, um, you know, my clients.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, like we're a chemical company and we make uh, napalm, which is used (laughs) in combat to burn people to death. Yeah, you talk about, uh, I witnessed the epitome of this cultural bias when someone explained to me a few years back that he wanted to create a brand purpose for a new brand of toilet paper Mm -hmm. his client was about to launch. Now that I think about it, I don't think that this brand was ever launched. <laughs> now, there is one thing I need to um, – well, the, the category bias, That's we've always done it that way. This is yep. uh, fill in the blank. We're, the, we're in pharmaceuticals. We're in law. We're heavily regulated. Yep. We're not regulated. No, that's just the way we do it. <laughs> that's Correct. a uh, target-rich environment, uh, in my experience, for you know disrupting things. The Absolutely. one thing that does not apply to marketing book podcast listeners is that – they are, in fact, better looking than other people, and I—I'll fight you on this, Uli. It, it's science, okay? I've done extensive research. These people are very well—they're—they're they're really ridiculously good-looking. I mean, mm. I connect with them on LinkedIn. You'll—you'll you'll hear from some. I hope that some people will reach out to you, listener. Reach out to Uli and connect with them on LinkedIn and show them. Just how I'm, I'm, really I'm gonna, attractive I'm, you are.
0: I'm going to do a little analysis of the people who reach out to me, and I'm sure I'm going to validate your hypothesis here, uh, Douglas. I'm sure. I'm sure that's going to be confirmed to
1: be true. Yeah.
0: But well, so, so, so here's a, a, an eye-opening uh, other piece of sort of like statistic, right? You're familiar with the bell curve, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is basically um, describes any given population into three categories: um, the majority, which is sort of like 90. percent um that are all similar and more similar than distinctive and then you have the top five percent that really stand out and then you have the bottom five percent that stand out um um, on the opposite side and i'm sure that if i ask you or even ask myself within this group which i mentioned earlier you know the guys who know how to parallel park um uh, deductive thinkers which group do you fall in you and i would probably say we fall into those top per- top five percent and mm-hmm. feel good about our answer the reality most likely statistically is that we fall into the top 90 percent that are in the middle um and just average, basically. So it's mm-hmm. it's uh, disheartening, but it's just a statistical reality.
1: It's interesting. And uh, last year, or this year, I think it was, I, I finally got fed up with Facebook, and I just deactivated it my account. And someone said, why? And I said, well, you know, if you think about it, half of your friends are below average intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> and just because they can post something doesn't mean we should all be reading that. <laughs> And I may be one of the, you know, maybe I attract people of below average intelligence. I'm certainly, you know, birds of a feather. So, well, let's jump ahead to uh, talk about these 26 sources of brand associations, which is really the background of your book. Can you give us an overview? We'll dive into some of these specifically and tell us how you came to these 26. Uh, There was a rather large number of brand positionings that you evaluated over the years. Is that right?
0: So, so it really started simply. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a practitioner, at Douglas. I'm a, I'm an, I'm not an academic. I don't care so much about the theory. I then tried to understand the theory of what I'm learning. But uh, it really started with me observing patterns. Right? Sometimes you see a brand is highly successful because it it highlights a specific, exclusive. Ingredients it has, or a brand is particularly successful because it taps into a higher value a, a consumer's desire or asp- aspire to, or it it builds its positioning around its country of origin. Uh, we talked about that in the context of Kerrygold, and I noticed early in my career that you have all these sort of like patterns that you see reappear across product category and across geographies and and frankly also across timeline. Um, and I asked myself, how many of these patterns can I identify? And I've always been an avid student of case studies, especially as a student and, and uh, in the early years of my career. And I've started to collect all these case studies. And every time I saw a new sort of like trigger or source of association for a successful positioning, I would capture it. And by 1200 or so case studies, I had identified these 26 and I couldn't identify a 27 or 28. So I, I stopped in the process. And so that's how I came about these 26, um, sources of brand associations. And the beauty of them is they're really not rocket science. Um, as an experienced marketer, you will have heard of all of them. The, the, the magic comes from, um, uh, having them, you know, in front of you, um, at the same time, so being able to look at your problem through those 26 sources of brand association. And, and that's the second benefit as well. It's like when you develop a brand positioning platform for your specific brand, you can use these 26 sources as inspiration to see would a country of origin appeal um, work for my brand? Mm-hmm. Would you know an endorsement by an expert work? Could I reframe it and target substitute products, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? So the ability to look at your problem through these 26 angles is really where the magic of this methodology comes from, rather than from the content itself. There is no silver bullet. There is no magic ingredient in this tried and true proven positioning strategies that you have the opportunity to explore at once um, and and that is something i've never seen in any methodology um uh before obviously.
1: yeah well that's that, here, and that's what sent me to the emergency room so thanks <laughs> apple bomb so i want to so there's there's basically three sections and we'll talk about each one but and each one has about well, it adds up to twenty-six. Yeah,
0: eight to ten, eight to ten different. Yeah,
1: different. so let's talk about the first one. I'm going to quote from page twenty-eight, where you say, "This is these are the frame of reference and context." That's the first of three that we, we can talk about. Deciding on the right frame of reference is an essential but often overlooked step in the positioning development process. In fact, many brands typically focus on and prefer to compete with their immediate competitors within their category, rather than within the broader context in which their brands could be perceived. And yet, it is this broader context that typically enables a marketer to reframe the way consumers look at the brand, change the dynamics of the category, and in the process, unleash new growth opportunities. Mm -hmm. Let me also say, uh, you have in the book the The idea of go through these twenty six and actually several might start pointing you in in the same direction, so it could actually be somewhat of an affirmation, right?
0: Absolutely, they're not mutually exclusive. Those are springboards for idea development, and and the springboards might point into similar direction, which means you might end up with similar ideas. Coming from diff, starting at, from different perspectives, but that is where the magic of this method comes in as well. Is if you have ten ideas that all gravitate in the same territory, you know that there is something going on there yes. that you want to look into.
1: Yes, uh, it's like you're getting uh, the right noise from your metal detector. You, there's expected. something. There's something in there. So these, uh, let's start with the nine different frames of reference. I'm going to list. I'm going to. We're not going to go into all of them, but I yeah. want to say what they are. And then um, ask you a couple of questions. Uh, So they are as follows. Tap into consumers' rituals. Mm -hmm. Disrupt the category conventions. Mm -hmm. Claim the category gold standard. Leverage the usage or consumption context. Mm -hmm. Identify an enemy. Overcome consumption barriers. Resolve a category paradox. Redefine the business you're in, which is what I really like. And be part of culture, but let's get back to what really grinds uli Applebaum's gears you know to to pick because i I could I could randomly pick one of the every one of these is on a different card in the deck, mm-hmm. and I was going to just pull it up and say all right tell us about this one but let's <laughs> let's turn it over to the guest <laughs> at this point can you tell us about what are of those I just mentioned what are maybe some of the more popular ones what are the ones that are most misunderstood? Uh, are there some that are the most abused? Which ones light your fuse?
0: Um, so uh, in a negative way, the one that lights my fuse is the being part of culture, right? So ah. um, over the last few years, you've seen an evolution of brand theory that is all about cultural branding um, and nothing wrong with that. I think cultural branding can be very powerful um, and cultural branding simply means embed yourself in the Beliefs and behaviors of a specific segment of consumers, you know, whether it's sneakerheads or whether it's motorcyclists or whether it's Harley riders. Um, we you, have these. I think ultra-
1: an example you have here is, uh, Molson Beer. Back to yep. the beer. You, you sense a trend here. They had a campaign called I Am Canadian.
0: And that's exactly right. So by associating, in in the case of Molson, with the core values of what it means to be Canadian, you create this affinity and this relevance for your brand, which you can, because uh, Molson, I think, was one of the largest brands in Canada. It's like uh, Budweiser doing that in the US, for example. Um, um, Very, very popular and powerful form to position your brand, but also very overused and misused.
1: Mm, Interesting. What are the are there ones that are maybe not used as much or the which ones are the most popular?
0: Um, well, the interesting thing, Douglas, is they often, um, they are contextual, right? And it all depends on what your competition is doing. You know what I mean? If everyone uh, plays sort of like the cultural game, you may want to go somewhere else. You may want to tap into the consumer rituals, tries to understand, is there a way for us to embed ourselves in an existing ritual to make our brand relevant? Um, the ones I find the most uh, interesting because they can be done both through workshops, but I've also done that through extensive quantitative and qualitative um, uh, uh, consulting projects is uh, redefining the business you're in.
1: Yes, um, I thought that was the most interesting one of these all. And I know I'm not being fair, so don't tell the others I said that, but <laughs> I thought that was very, and talk about that. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and what's fascinating about that is it there is a, also a systematic and a rigor you can apply to really reconsider the the. The way you look at your business, you know, I'm I'm a hotel. Am I in the hospitality business or am I in the entertaining business?
1: Yes. What business the, are we really in?
0: Oh, that's exactly it. right. And I did a couple of years ago. I did a lot of work for state lotteries here in the U.S. And uh, one thing, for example, we we uh, did is I was part of a broader consulting project. You know, you're familiar with the draw games, right? Which, uh, pick six numbers and then, uh, you have one chance in a trillion to, to win the jackpot. Um, and they wanted, they were looking for, for growth opportunities. The problem with these draw games is what you really just have is you have like, you know, pick six numbers. That's basically your, your starting point, um, for every Game development or, or new product development, and through research, qualitative research, quantitative research, and, and workshops with the client, we we really um, learned and, and reframed the drug uh, game business as being in the mood management business. Hmm. And what that meant is, people buy these cards. You know, I feel lucky today. I've seen the number eight seven times since this morning. It was like a uh, bus line eight. Um, you know, there were eight cups in the cupboard. That's my lucky number. So I'm gonna uh, leverage this feeling of luck and buy tickets. Or, you know, I'm g- receiving another in bill this morning, and I wonder how I'm gonna, you know, uh, make end meets by the end of the month. Mm-hmm. Um, so people buy the tickets as a way way to manage their mood, get out of their negative uh, mood and and maintain their positive mood. Now, when you reframe the category like that, then you can ask yourself the question, what other mood-enhancing products can we think about? or well, beer. Context, or beer in the context of, but you could have a, uh, you know, a promotion with a beer brand that, you know, provides a lottery type experience on the different bottles. I like
1: you how know? you think, Mr. Applebaum.
0: <laughs> but the point is, all of a sudden, you look at your category in a very different way, uh, uncover opportunities in a very different, um, very different opportunities. And the funny thing is, when we presented that to the executive team, um, I had someone come to me and said you know we've been in the category for 25 years we've never looked at it from this perspective but we had the quantitative data not only to support this sort of like new frame of reference we could also quantify the opportunity because we know you know how many people uh, spend on each game etc etc so you could validate it quantitatively um and 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 validate this reframed view of the category on a quantitative basis. So very powerful stuff once you get it right.
1: Yes, it's like you gave them permission Absolutely. to think about it differently. And and it's also important, um, you know, there have been a lot of really fantastic books on the show over the years about designing, engineering a better customer experience. Mm-hmm. And this, I think, ties into that as well. Because, like, if you think you're in the roo- the, the business of selling hotel rooms for the mm-hmm. night, No, no, no. (laughs) That is not what people are buying necessarily. There's something different. The one question I did want to ask, so when you did that work for the lottery, did they tell you what the winning numbers are? Because if we could talk about that after the show, I'd I'd appreciate if you could just, you know, help a brother out.
0: I offered to give them a 50% discount on my fee for that information, but they refused to. So, no, unfortunately, no. That's why I'm still working. That's why I oh, have to write
1: books. That's why you're having to talk to me. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, great. Wait, let me just ask about one other one that I thought was yeah. very powerful that I think companies may not want to do. That's where you identify an enemy. Mm-hmm. Talk about doing that. What you say uh, it can be very effective to position your brand against something. Mm-hmm. Rather than for something. Do you find that most companies are reluctant to want to do that?
0: Um, some are, but the funny thing, I used to work in, well, I, I did work a few years ago in security software, right? Um, the the McAfee's and the Nortons of this world. Basically, you know, there's And Symantec, software. I think. And Symantec too, yeah. absolutely. And the funny thing is, at the time, there was the genuine desire to move away from fear tactics to sell the product. And the great purpose, right, is like we don't want to scare people into buying our product. But when you looked at what was driving sales is the big headlines in the news (laughs) on data breach, on all these kind of things, so all these fear uh, headlines. Were literally what was driving the business, yeah. um, And whether whether Symantec wanted to accept it or not, that was a core driver of the business. It's it just just absolutely incredible. Sometimes it may be as simple, Douglas, as you know, visualizing a problem that people might not be aware of. And an old school example was, I think, in Germany, you had like a, advertising for a toothpaste where you had to eat a little red pill. And it would show you all the bacteria that are still on your teeth and that would turn all the, the, the teeth red, Mm. you know, and the point was, ooh, yeah, your toothbrush didn't get rid of all of that. So it's visualizing a problem consumers might not think about or might not be aware of Um, it can be something like that or it can be you know um, fighting a a cultural point of view that's the other thing is a lot of these uh, uh, sources of association overlap right so when like mini launched um uh, mini the car maker launched in the u.s they they focus on uh, as an enemy the big gas guzzling suvs (laughs) you know so they took a point of view against these consumption, um, gas consumption of these massive trucks. Um, uh, so how you define an enemy can really vary and can, can depend on the category you're in and can also depend on the affinity and the hunger and the ambition of the executive team working on it. But to your point, it's a very powerful, um, very powerful, um, uh, strategy.
1: Yes. And it also, again, back to your methodology. Ju- you're not having to do it. You're trying it out in a workshop. Correct. <laughs> you're putting it up on the whiteboard. You're you're just evaluating it as a as a as a next step. That's where going down some of these what people might think of different rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. No, you go go through it. Uh, yeah. Some it may not may not uh, may not work out, but there's the approach not considered is I think uh, is, is as as bad as trying something that that didn't work out. So
0: absolutely, it, as a friend of mine put it, it it allows you in a safe environment. To think unsafe thoughts, and that's exactly what it does. You can experiment. Can we attack our competitor? Can we attack a leading cultural trend? Um, yeah. Or don't we prefer? would we prefer not to do that?
1: So, yeah. yeah. And so- that's a great. That's a great way to put it. That's a great way to put it. So let's jump to the next one. Defining the human connection. Yeah. And you write this next section invites you to identify positioning territories for your brand by exploring the type of value you want to offer consumers, the type of relationships you want to establish with them and the role you want your brand to play in their lives. And let me just list. These are seven. One is tell a compelling benefit story, dramatize the reward or the threat, mm-hmm. which reminds me a little bit of the enemy there. Yeah. Celebrate the sensory properties of the product. Mm-hmm. Align your brand's values with aspirational consumer values. Mm-hmm. create a ritual around the usage of your brand uh, like the lime in the corona beer yeah, bottle absolutely i don't know what it is when i'm talking to somebody with a german accent i just can't stop <laughs> thinking about all the product testing i did in germany and uh the the next to the last one is identify your brand's purpose and then uh, finally identify your brand's archetype mm-hmm. any of those but i got a couple questions i want to ask about but what are the ones that uh I don't know, what what surprises you the most or what do people struggle with? What are people most inclined to want to do, least inclined to do?
0: Well, you know what my answer is going to be? What the people are most inclined to do is to focus immediately on the brand purpose, right? Um,
1: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) we've crossed, we've checked that box, yeah. Yeah,
0: and uh, so that's that's the most... um, Well, what
1: we do, I am going to ask you some specific things about that. Well, hell, shit, let me just... (laughs) Let me jump to the, identify your brand purpose. You know what? This was the one that really did, oh man, I see this being done wrong all the time. There was an author on the show mm, about six months ago, Steve Harrison. He wrote a book called Can't Sell, Won't Sell. Very controversial, but he attacks in greater depth and with, unfortunately, with a lot of research about the perils of some of this uh, brand purpose uh, activity. It can work well, but not always. So, I want you to jump into this. You say a brand can tell a powerful story by focusing on its purpose. The concept of brand purpose has become very popular in recent years, but it is also often misunderstood, Mm -hmm. misused, and used as an excuse to skip the strategic process. Talk about those three. Misunderstood, (laughs) misused, and used as an excuse to skip the strategic process.
0: Well, the, the funny thing is um, misunderstood because often it's associated with you need to take a point of view on social issues or mm. you need to um, uh, contribute to make the world a better place. Um, and, you know, one example I would would use, a typical example for an extremely purposeful driven brand is Dyson, the Vice Vacuum Cleaners. Um, you know, and when you look at the story of, of Mr. Dyson, the poor guy spent 20 years of his life developing a vacuum cleaner technology that addresses some of the biggest problems in the category, which is doesn't lose section. So, I don't know who else would be more purposeful than the guy who spends 20 years, you know, developing a superior um, vacuum cleaner technology. Um, so he didn't really care about, you know. Orphans, or dolphins, or world world hunger. He focused on that specific problem. So Mm -hmm. that's what I mean with misunderstood. Um, What what a purpose can be? A purpose can be to develop, to continue your analogy. And I feel a bit uh, stereotyped here. Is you know the best beer brewing methodology in the world. You know that could be my purpose to develop the single best beer. In the world, and that's perfectly fine. Um, misused is because it's often used as a communication gimmick, as opposed to a genuine drive of the organization. You know, right? Yeah,
1: Maybe had nothing to do with what they've been talking about for years. They're like jumping on the bandwagon.
0: That's exactly right. Or like
1: yeah. uh, like that Pepsi commercial that from that's you-
0: exactly what I was about to mention. Absolutely. And consumers aren't stupid, right? They will see through your game. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, but that that you see that misused as well, and and the third point is you know the excuse to skip the strategic process is look at twenty website of advertising agencies, eighty um, percent of them will start by telling you they will help you define your brand purpose, mm. right? So it's like you and me, uh, Douglas, going to a doctor, and the doctor say, dub, 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 "I don't need to look at you, I don't need to look at your situation, I don't need to do a di- diagnostic." Uh, herbal tea is the solution to your problems, you know? And you might go there with like a broken leg and the doctor would say, herbal tea will fix your problem, you know? And I may be going there like being obese and overweight and having blood sugar issues and the doctor would again say, I don't need to look at you. I need to find the right herbal tea flavor for you and you'll be doing I mean who would do that right? And yet we do that daily in the marketing world and spend billions of dollars on herbal tea um, to address problem we haven't identified you know what I mean um, so that's what I mean with this laziness it's it's everyone aspires to to be a better person to do good in the world but the reality is if you're marketing a brand of you know plastic bottles still water you are not contributing to a better world you're contributing (laughs) to a worse world and then telling me that now the cap of your bottle has 10 percent of sustainable recycled material in it you know is not a purpose driven approach it's 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 you know green it's greenwashing yes exactly. absolutely so that's why i get excited or annoyed by these things because there is a lot of abuse um now that said douglas i work for amazing clients that are extremely purpose driven um so i'm a firm believer in this approach for the right client doing it for the right reasons if it's just to sell more products and to try to you know uh be part of the science of the time and the cultural zeitgeist, uh, then it's a complete waste of effort, in my opinion.
1: (laughs) Yes, you're right. A research paper by Reach Solutions entitled The Empathy Delusion from 2019 came to the conclusion that the major driving force behind virtue strategies, a.k.a. brand purpose, is not the needs of the mainstream consumers. It's the assumptions and needs of the people in the advertising and marketing industry. You go on to write, which may explain why the marketing and advertising industry and trade press obsess over it so much. Mm-hmm. And on the next page, great line, you write, the challenge with developing a strong brand purpose and a mistake that many brand managers make is that it is often not rooted in the brand's equity and core benefit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that was terrific. Let me ask about one of the others. Page 49, you write, I want you to explain this is about tell a compelling benefit story. Mm-hmm. Explain what you mean when you write the trap most marketers fall into is to focus only on category generic benefits, rather than on creating a brand specific one.
0: That comes back to our butter conversation: tastes good and is healthy. But I talked to two thousand consumers, and sixty-nine percent of us of them tell us, um, you know, that it should be tasting good, and it should be healthy. Um, that's what I mean with that. It's like, yes, and factually, it's true as well. And I'm sure if you ask the consumers, would you like to save, you know, penguins in Antarctica while eating your butter, 85% of them will tell you yes. Uh-huh. Um, but it's still absolutely generic for the category, right? It's not It's not specific to a brand or to the brand you're trying to market. That's why I also mentioned this example of, um, uh, you know, Kills 99 of germs by by Clorox, Um, simply by putting a number um, uh, behind a category generic benefit um, makes it specific to Clorox. Now, I think now everyone has been copying that claim. Um, But for a long time, if you heard, you know, kills 99.9% of germs, you would associate that benefit with Clorox. Mm -hmm. You could also say, you know, kills all the germs or, you know, is better at everyone else's killing germs germs, um, it would still have a different impact than saying 99% of germs. So that's what I mean with that is, and and that's also one of the rules um, or the, the, the mistakes I see in developing positionings. I think I mentioned that in the list is simply this notion of, don't just focus on what the consumer tell you they want. Yes. Because you're going to be generic if you do that.
1: Um, right. They might not be able to articulate what they want. Absolutely. I hate to use the Steve Jobs Apple thing, but they didn't know that they wanted 10,000 songs in their pocket on a <laughs> on a iPod yeah. player mm-hmm. however steve jobs also researched people and had a deep understanding of what his customers wanted i think mm-hmm. the the legend of steve jobs is very often misunderstood as no i'll tell the people what they want and that is not sure. at all no. He he understood his customers uh extremely yeah. well. So
0: And you need to understand what they're you need to hear them, right? Not just to listen to them, but you need to hear them. So I typically have this example like when you run focus groups, you know. Don't listen for the ideas that create the most consensus, you know, where eight people out of the, the group will say, Yes, I agree with that. Listen for the ideas where four people agree and four people disagree and discuss it and get excited about it because that's where you're trying to. That's where you get the richness of new ideas, basically.
1: Yeah. Let's jump to the last uh, of the three, yeah. the brand story. Uh-huh. And let me just quote. And uh, you say the next ten areas focus on the offering itself, <laughs> which of course is what every company wants to talk about their their yeah. own product. They invite you to explore your offering from all its angles, with the objective being to identify something distinctive and unique, and thus inspire potential positioning ideas. Ideally. Elements of the product story will be woven together with an engaging way to connect with the brand's audience within a specific frame of reference. In other words, elements of the product story work best when they either support the brand promise or have enough appeal to become the brand promise. Mm-hmm. But then you go on to write – well, let me tell you what the 10 are, and then I'm going to ask you uh, to clarify something. Mm-hmm. The, the, these are the 10 sources of brand associations. Okay. Uh, identify the brand's defining attributes. Give meaning to a perceived weakness. Mm-hmm. Tell the product's creation story. Romance the way the product works. Celebrate your ingredients. Submit your brand to a torture test. Tell your origin story, which you mentioned earlier. Create a sense of scarcity and exclusivity. Let experts tell your story, which is one you mentioned earlier, and become your brand's archaeologist. But mm-hmm. before that, you I want you to explain this. You write, in my experience, the brand story can be very polarizing in the marketing and advertising industry. Explain mm-hmm. what you mean there.
0: Well, it's funny, right? So when you talk to a brand manager, all he wants to do is talk about his product, and that is not the right way to do it. When you talk to the advertising, um, agency, all they want to do is not talk about the products. <laughs> um, you know, they want big, lofty ideas. No, don't show me the logo. Don't tell me the three product benefits that, that your Brand delivers, you know, you got to engage the consumer, romance them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you see this big tension between uh, the marketing world and the communication world, and I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was this global um, agency network called uh, McCann think Now mm-hmm. it's McCann. Um, their motto used to be, I don't know if it still is, but it's "truth well told." Yes, um,
1: you know, I was just looking that up the other day. Mm-hmm. It, it, apparently, it's still used. It's on their website.
0: Oh, that's awesome! Truth well
1: told brilliant and it's like a uh, 110 120 years old
0: absolutely and and for me the idea is really each product each brand has a unique story that comes from the brand. That is not borrowing interest from a celebrity or a, you know cultural trend. That is there. There's an inherent truth or interesting element to the story, and the job of a strategist and then of a creative is to uncover it and associate it with the brand. So um, um, uh, yeah, that's 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 why what I mentioned with this tension between the marketing and the advertising world. And mm-hmm. uh, um, often in my my consulting gigs, you know, I ask my my key stake. Of my key clients. Can I talk to your R&D people? Can I talk to your innovation people? Because I want to know exactly what's in your product, how it works, what is different between, you know, your ingredients versus the competitive ingredient. I worked recently with a client and they had um, a technology, it's a food client. Um, They had a a little technology, I cannot go into too much detail, which basically used uh, nutrients and um, from real fruits and vegetables in its products uh made the product more expensive as opposed to to uh using synthetic um uh nutrients that were put in the product. Hmm. And as part of the conversation we realized or you know when I heard that I was like consumers love the notion of you know natural nutrients as opposed to synthetic nutrients. Is there like an enemy story you can tell? Um, natural store natural nutrients you can probably also tell a nice good story of being better absorbed by the body, you know, on how the product works. So all of a sudden, we're like, oh, my God, you're sitting on a gold mine um, that you haven't leveraged yet um, because you didn't know what story to tell about that. And Mm -hmm. the fact that, frankly, that it's more expensive as an ingredient than synthetic also says something about the values of this company, right? So we are willing to pay a bit more because it's the right thing to do. And we have a proof point to make that that statement. Mm. So um, all of a sudden we crystallize that element of the product, but we wouldn't have... Um, uncovered that if we wouldn't have had an in-depth conversation about the product story itself, the ingredients, the way it's manufactured, the, how the ingredients are sourced, etc., etc. So um, I find this aspect fascinating in, in uncovering a brand truth um, and uh, uh, unfortunately something that is often neglected and not not focused on enough.
1: Yeah. Well, the one that I, I really uh, liked – is uh, give meaning to a perceived weakness. And it reminded uh-huh. me of um, years ago, uh, after I lived in Germany, I worked at uh, J. Walter Thompson in, in New uh-huh. York, and I worked on the Listerine account. Mm-hmm. And that was when it was just the brown, amber-colored, really uh, not very good tasting. But I, actually, I was I worked on their advertising when they first came out with their... Cool mint Listerine, which is the mm-hmm. first line extension in 115 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were very nervous about that, yeah, but anyway, sure. there was a campaign for Listerine, which really tastes awful, uh, and it was the taste you love to hate twice a for day sure. or something like that. And I remember the client told us that it was the term they used was perceived efficacy, mm-hmm. but it really did. It was a it was made in the 1870s, I think, and it just. It was an antiseptic, and it worked really well. Another example from when I was in New York was there was, a, I think, a Pontiac dealership. Pontiac, look how old I sound. That's a brand that's not even made anymore. But it was like a Pontiac dealership, I think, in Connecticut. And they had these ads, which were really very clever, very funny, very well done. Mm -hmm. But they were purposefully bad. Mm-hmm. You have to be good at advertising to make ads that are really, really purposely bad. And the whole slogan was "Great cars, terrible advertising." Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you stand to it, right? You you stick to it. You're you're true to yourself. I
1: absolutely. remembered that. Yeah. And then the other great example you have in the book here is Heinz ketchup. Yeah. Uh, the slow pour. Explain that.
0: That's one of my favorite as well. It's like um, Heinz. Sorry, Heinz Ketchup always said, especially in the glass bottles, right? You always struggle to get out the, the product out of the bottle. You right, well, because we couldn't air squeeze air.
1: the glass, I guess, yeah. That's exactly right. Or
0: right. you shake it, etc., etc. And a natural conclusion from a marketing person would have been, ooh, the product is too solid, not liquid enough. It doesn't come out fast enough. We need to fix that. That would have been the right. typical solution. Right?
1: Yeah, people in the focus group complained about that. Therefore, Correct. Correct. <laughs> fix
0: Give it. them what they tell you.
1: They yes, ah, that's right. No, which and, is not uh, what you should do, folks.
0: No, and <laughs> Heinz never has done that. And and they've had the campaigns over the years where they say, you know, uh, I forgot the number, but it's like, our oh, product is like that because it contains uh, nine real tomatoes per bottle or something like that so they always justified the consistency of the product with a quality statement um which i thought was a brilliant way to reinforce the um, the, the the quality perception of the brand and i think uh, there was a canadian campaign uh, last year if i remember well where the the Brand team and the agency were smart enough. What they did is they took the label on the front of the bottle and turned it by forty-five degrees. Um, so the label, the brand label, is completely offset on the bottle, but it shows you the perfect pour angle. <laughs> so um, if you turn the bottle and the the logo becomes horizontal, the way you are used to see it, your bottle is leaning in at forty-five degrees, which is the perfect pour angle. So even here, they used a very tactical, brilliant tactical element to continue to reinforce this perceived negative and in that case also to create buzz around the brand without having to say no we're going to make it more liquid you know we're going to use other ingredients um maybe taste enhancer to keep the same flavor but we're going to make it more liquid so people can pour it out quicker Um, yes brilliant brilliant um uh, sticking to your gun, so to say, or to your belief of what the quali- the product should be doing.
1: Yes, well, it, 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 towards the end of the book, you have a you know, pretty good section here, on uh, pretty pretty big section on how to use this methodology. It's got fourteen steps. Uh-huh. and I could tell that every one of these was based on you having seen it go wrong with somebody, uh-huh. <laughs> so appreciate you suffering for your art, but I want to ask you a question about number three, about define we're not going to go through all these, but yep. define and redefine your problem yep. you write, clearly define the problem you are trying to solve with the new positioning platform it is often worth spending some extra time on this exercise to provide clarity and align the involved team, in mm-hmm. fact we are all familiar with the quote, a problem well stated is half solved, and yet I am often surprised to see how little time is spent on properly defining the problem. Mm-hmm. Talk more about that. Um,
0: that is comes back to the reframing, right? Both to creative problem solving and to the reframing is, what exactly are you solving for? Mm-hmm. And a typical example I remember learning early in my career is like the… Um, um, you know, the waiting line at the catch reg- cash registers are too long. Um, how do we shorten them? You know, um, that would be a, a, a definition of the problem, let's say, a grocery store is facing. And the obvious solution becomes, you know, self-checkout, more cash registers, um, you know, an automatic scanning system, yada, yada, yada. But that same problem, you can reframe it and say, how do we make the waiting... In the lines more entertaining or how do we make people want to wait in lines and that is what disney world does right Mm -hmm. you're standing like for hours um in line to wait for the next ride but they always find ways to keep you entertained so how you define your problem statement determines the solution you will come up with if that makes sense
1: yes and there was a uh, uh an episode called Evolutionary Ideas or about the book Evolutionary Ideas with Sam Tatum, who works for Ogilvy. Mm -hmm. was on recently and he talked uh, in the book and also during the interview about uh, Rory Sutherland, TED Talk. So, you know Rory. Of course. And he was explaining in this video about how people wanted to, the train to go faster across the channel. Yeah. And he was explaining that they don't actually want it to go faster. If you hired models Mm -hmm. perhaps marketing book (laughs) podcast listeners, and served uh, champagne uh, on the train, people would want it to go more slowly. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) That is exactly right. And instead of spending a billion on making the train go faster, you spend tens of millions um, to make the ride more appealing and entertaining. Yes.
1: Absolutely. Oh, my goodness. That is
0: so very true.
1: Yeah. Well, there's just two other things I want to ask you about on the book. I want you to talk about this. It's about – Creativity techniques to overcome mental biases and group thinking. And Uli Applebaum, you are going to win the bravery award (laughs) because you talk about how you once went into the belly of the beast and you write – I once had to get divergent thinking out of a group of 12 German engineers mm-hmm. <laughs> for a company manufacturing medical equipment. I mean, it's one thing to be an engineer, but then there's the whole German engineer, you know, oh, yeah. oh, which, which, yeah. which, which um, automotive companies will, will brag about, German, German automotive companies. Talk about <laughs> – tell us about that. Tell us about how you lived through it. And if you could talk about some of the, the ways that you helped to get them to think differently.
0: Yeah. So, so that was a highlight and a low light of my career because I can imagine this was a global project. Um, it was about positioning a CT scanner for a, a global, um, uh, medical, uh, equipment brand. Um, and the idea was to bring together these 12 people from around the world, all engineers and get them to think outside the box on how to position these CT scanners. Um, and you know, one of the exercises I regularly like to do is like uh, think about potential negatives, right? Think about what are the potential barriers to use your brand. Well, wait, and wait, then-
1: wait! You almost were you were worried that you weren't even going to get to the second day of the two day workshop. It was and
0: that is absolutely right. The it was first going so was, badly. The first day was an absolute catastrophe because literally the first day, as I mentioned, I had this exercise where I asked them, okay. Where's a weakness in your product? And one of these German engineers tells me the product has no weakness. The only weakness is the patient because they stand, they move. When you put them in the CT scanner, and that messes up the imagery. And um, uh, you know, also, we're like, okay. So the first night, I was literally very nice client, great culture. Luckily, the stakeholder that hired me knew the culture, so they knew that there'd be struggles. But I was sitting like the first night at the bar by myself, thinking like, okay, so yeah, I can pack my bag. <laughs> my career
1: is play. over. Yeah,
0: yeah, I can fly back tomorrow morning. Um, to I don't even have to do the second work, second day of the workshop. So the the second day, I decided then to approach. First of all, I made a dirty joke, which I couldn't be, I couldn't do in the U.S. Um, for for like political correctness reasons. <laughs> but I made a dirty joke about engineers' attitudes towards a woman. It had to do with um, um, uh, you know two engineers meeting each other. Uh, one had met a naked woman, but the other one, all he thinks about is the bike the naked woman gave away. So like a completely, you know, irrational, but very German engineer type answer. Right. And the second thing is I'd, I started to use different exercises. So instead of doing group exercises, um, I started to do things like brain riding and brainwriting is basically i sit down the group of 12 and have them work individually on a piece of paper and come up with ideas for like 2 or 3 minutes and then you you once you you've spent 2 or 3 minutes capturing ideas you hand over your ideas to your neighbors next door uh, mm-hmm. next to you and have them build on it
1: mm-hmm. and the time so, pressure is important
0: and the time under a specific time pressure and what that allowed me to do is like cut out all conversations um, out of the group and yet Tap into their creative potential. Um, if that makes sense. I basically didn't allow them to speak with each other for the duration of this exercise. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> which, which enabled make, you to probably have more control over the process.
0: To add more control add to an outcome that was very satisfactory because the background to that, to make it even worse, is the agency had, also the, the client had worked on developing a global positioning for six months with their agency, presented that to the executive team, and the executive team told them, I hate everything you've just showed me, but you have two months to come up with a new positioning because we're launching that brand in two months from now. So I was sort of like the fallback option, uh trying to come to a solution in in the context of a workshop, uh, which hadn't failed in the six months before that. But luckily it worked and then led to repeat business from this client. So I was glad I didn't change my booking my ticket um on the way home (laughs) um and and it turned out to be a really good thing but yes if you survive 12 german engineers in a creative ideation session i'm not afraid of any audience out there um uh any longer because i know there is ways to um uh to 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 get the best out of it but another lesson i took out of that douglas is and and every experienced um workshop facilitator will will know that is you know at the end of day one you reassess how things are going and you adapt and adjust your approach to day two to make sure you get out with the result desired results right you cannot uh, continue what didn't work on day one on day two and hope that pray pray the gods of consulting that somehow miraculously you'll come up with a with an idea so no you have to be flexible and adjust and adapt
1: Yes, can you explain what the negative brainstorm is?
0: I love the negative brainstorm is I don't know if you've ever noticed it it's so also I don't know if you know we live in this culture where we always want to be positive and you know everything needs to be optimistic and all these kind of things. And when you look at a kid, what kids love to do is destroy everything. you know <laughs> right. They build a tower of like wood blocks and it takes them like two minutes, but you see the the sadistic, smile in their face you know when they destroy the whole thing when they break it and and that's exactly (laughs) the logic the power of negative emotions right is tell me everything that's wrong about your product let it out let it go and you'd be surprised by how many ideas and how much energy you can create but then, obviously, once you have all the negatives, you need to have a, a follow-up exercise to turn those negative then into potential positives. So you can't leave them in the negative. But the the, the 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 energy created by sort of like destruction and negativity is is I would say stronger than the energy that you create by only positive thinking. You
1: know? Yeah, you have uh, in here. Instead of asking what are the attributes of the brand, ask instead what is the brand not? Mm -hmm. If the question becomes, how can we associate ourselves with and become part of today's prevailing mommy culture, for example, ask instead, what should we do to be excluded (laughs) (laughs) by today's moms?
0: And that's exactly right. What do we need to do to piss off moms today? Trust me, yeah. you'll come up with a much longer list than if I'd ask you, so Douglas, what are the top five ideas to connect with moms out there?
1: Right, right. Oh, it's great. It's great. It reminds me of the book by Nicholas Webb that was on the show a while back called What Customers Hate. Mm-hmm. And he was advising that instead of trying to delight your customers and, and satisfy them at every point, start by figuring out what they really hate. Yeah. <laughs> it'll give you a shorter thing, list of things to do, and it'll uh, it'll generate a lot of other ideas and it will it'll really help help you stand out. but you have to be honest about what they hate. It might be not, maybe not your company, but it could be something about your category yeah. that, that people really hate so the last thing I want to talk about as promised, we don't can't get into all of them, but the nine most common mistakes when positioning a brand yeah. and just so the listener knows the list did not include not hiring. Uli Applebaum. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't need to include that. No, I appreciate you mentioning that. Thank so, you. So, yeah, well, if you needed ten, but nine, nine works better, I think, in uh, testing of uh, what gets more clicks uh, mm-hmm. on a on a website. So, is is there one that's more costly a mistake than others? Um,
0: it to me, it comes down to laziness. Um, uh, we ca- we talked about a couple of them, right, a poorly, poorly defined business problem up front or a focus on what the consumers tell you they want. That's the taste, the butter that tastes great and is
1: healthy. Yeah, you say an obsessive focus <laughs> on what yes. the audience wants and really what it, what it is they say they want.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, and and we're wired as marketing people, right? It's all about consumer focus. The consumer tells me he wants my food product to taste good. It's like, okay, what what else is new?
1: Yeah, and I'd like to breathe <laughs> oxygen. That's
0: right. <laughs> you know, or a mom telling me, Oh, she really has a lot to do and is really tired. Seriously? Oh, I didn't know that. I hadn't noticed. Um, but the things that stand out for me is, um, focus, um, uh, The focus on consumers, um, as opposed to focusing on the people buying the brands, right? So I once was in a, in a focus group in Chicago and it's a true story where, um, over the course of an evening, we talked to two or three focus groups where we wanted to ask people, um, what is more relevant to them? White teeth or bright teeth? Um, and and Douglas, I kid you not. So for six hours of focus groups, we were watching consumers getting tortured um, with this idea of white teeth versus bright teeth. And the reality is, no one thinks in with such an obsession about brands and products as brand managers do, right? So if you understand the role a toothpaste plays in your life, um, you think about your strategy in a more Contextual appropriate way, in my opinion. You know, no one, no one sits there sixteen hours a day, thinking like, "Ooh, my my pay, my tube of toothpaste is running out. I think this weekend I need to buy a new brand of toothpaste. What is it going to be? Should I have a pros and cons list? Should I compare my the different brands out there? You know, no, no one does that. You go to the store, you look at this, and say, "Oh, that's my color. Oh." This one looks interesting. I'm going to try that one. Um, so it's really think about um, the consumers of people as people, not as consumers of your specific category. Yes. And the other one that really bothers me: is simply a lack of ideas. Um, you know, and that's often the result of a consensus. Uh, you want it to taste good. I think it should be healthy. Yes, it should also be spreadable. And, uh, you know, and so, so everyone adds a little bit something and then you come up with a generic positioning statement and you expect basically your creative team or your creative agency to turn that generic statement into a distinctive <laughs> motivating idea. And that I just find lazy. Um, and, and one of the other big, it, it's convenient, right? Because all the creatives are going to solve that for us.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's where you talk about how one of the, number six was the expectation that differentiation will happen in the way that brand positioning platform is brought to life in its execution. That's, that's exactly right. Yeah. I'm but like, on that one, the lack of ideas, you say weak positioning statements usually capture an ideal but boring summary of everything the consumer desires. Oh, yep. my goodness. Let me just ask about seven and eight, though. A seven is a lack of diverse and divergent perspectives, or what is called the drunkard's search effect. Mm-hmm. The drunkard's search effect, also called the streetlight effect, which I think it might have been in one of a book by Ogilvy where he talked about marketers will often use data yep. like a street lamp. Because it's more for support than illumination, because mm-hmm. the, the drunk person just using it to hold him up. But then I've heard another story where, th- that may be what you're talking about here, where the, a person is looking, it's at night, and there's a, a street light out there, and the guy is looking for his car keys. And uh, somebody comes along and says, uh, where, where, did you, where did you lose them? Mm-hmm. And he says, over there in the dark. He goes, well, why are you looking here where it's light? He says, because that's all I can see.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. <laughs>
1: Is that, was it one of those two?
0: Yeah, that's, uh, that's why it's called also the streetlight effect. I think that's the story behind the second way to name this, um, uh-huh. this principle. and, and yes, it, it's basically just, uh, comes back to partly also to the confirmation bias. You know, if we all have the same attitude and perspective and experiences, we're all going to come up with the same ideas. Um, bringing divergence into um, the group you put together, you know, whether it's, uh, uh, it, it, and we talked about that earlier too, right? It's it's bringing a salesperson to solve a marketing problem, you know, bring in a cultural analysts to solve a, a scientific problem, um, bring people with different backgrounds to to really expand the divergence of of your thinking in that specific phase. Because you're looking for, you know, we talked earlier about a safe environment for for scary ideas or for mm-hmm. big ideas. Mm-hmm. You want people to come up with big ideas that scare you. And the truth is... Um, uh, you are only able to come up with that many, have another person with a different perspective telling you something completely different that surprises you. That is the key to really, truly innovative ideas and innovative thinking, and therefore also great positioning platforms.
1: Yes, and uh, before we were recording, you were talking about how you really you deal with the salespeople mm-hmm. at uh, organizations. And I, I think it was when I told you that so many salespeople listen to this podcast, and this was the last one. I thought it was – no, this was eight – but this is really, really important, and I've, I've seen this happen, and I just makes my heart ache. You write, ignoring the importance of creating alignment within the organization. That's number eight. Mm-hmm. Brand positioning statements are pointless if they're not embraced by the organization, by all the constituents and stakeholders within the organization. You can have a killer positioning platform, but if your R&D team, your sales team— or your international or local marketing teams don't buy into it and get excited by it, it's worthless, and its implementation will fail. Guaranteed. In politically driven organizations or organizations with decentralized P&Ls, the easy way out, which I see a lot, is to try to, one, develop a brand positioning platform in a silo away from all distracting influences. Yeah, think like an offsite. Two, get a senior officer to approve it and three, then try to socialize it within the organization. <laughs> this approach is the path of least resistance, but will fail nine out of ten times. When you engage with a client, do you are you able to tell pretty early on if they're going to be able to get widespread support for this, or if it's going to be one of those offsite uh, skunk works kind of projects?
0: Well, to be honest, I design my processes so that they accommodate for that, right? So Mm. whether it's a stakeholder interview phase in the beginning of the process, um, whether it's determining who is going to be part of the workshop if we do a workshop or the ideation process. And the idea is really, um, and and to be honest, I never never have a problem convincing my client that that's the way to go, um, because frankly, I do the work, not them, Um, (laughs) and the truth is everyone is curious to know what the other people in the organization think you know Mm. Um, so I never have a problem with that Um, but I put an extra layer on that as well is these initial stakeholder interviews I make a point in also talking to people who are not supporting the project who, who are not interested in supporting the project -hmm. To really understand what are the political barriers um, that um, we are going to encounter in this project? Where are the resistance? You know, where is the resistance? What are the main arguments for not doing these things? And by involving this. People in the process by getting their point of view early in the process um, is actually a very use, use, useful step to guide uh, the the thinking moving forward and involve these people then um, in the process. You know, I once had a, in one of another international workshop where we had like a representative from I think seventeen different countries. Um, I'm going to say the French guy in the room. I'm sorry for stereotyping. You know, <laughs> would shut down every well, single idea.
1: We're stereotyping all over the place here. So that's uh, <laughs> That's true. actually you know say, what there was a story in your book about how you were dealing with people from several different countries and there was one person who was just trashing everyone else that's is this exactly the same right. story
0: that's exactly the same story and the gentleman oh. was a french gentleman and nothing that was discussed would work in his country you know that's right so i took him aside or had him work out basically well you're telling us that none of these things work how would you launch that brand in your country <laughs> And I gave him like an hour or two to work on it by himself. Uh-huh. And oh, look at that! Ninety-five percent of the solutions he came up with were the ones discussed in the group. And then you know, the whole group looks at this and thinks, "Oh, yeah, that's a very specific to France, indeed." I'm glad we had the input from the French um, um, marketing director to help it help us make it relevant. Yeah, but um, um, that's just part of the the process, which as a consultant, you learn to, to manage basically.
1: Right. That was number three on the nine most common mistakes when positioning a brand, letting the loudest voice in the room dictate the ideation session. Let's be careful out there, folks. So (laughs) Uli, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be?
0: As simple as it sound and it's not self promoting, but it's developing a really distinctive positioning platform that is highly relevant to consumers is not rocket science. It's not magic. It's simply the outcome of a systematic and rigorous process um, that guaranteed will lead to better thinking than than when not applying the process. That's really it. It's basically demystifying the positioning development process and this whole Aura and magic that is around positioning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Now you did say that you did do a alcohol infused brainstorming session <laughs> in the past. So it's a, you know you, you were you were just evaluating all the options. You know you're That's a practitioner. Exactly right. You were trying that, those things.
0: That was a way to promote my divergent thinking. You know what I mean? There was there was a <laughs> method to the madness. It wasn't a, a random exercise. It was would would alcohol in our blood. In- lead to better ideas and the yeah. answer was yes it does
1: well and i'm still working on that so <laughs> but you know we, you and i we were professionals so of course you know we we never sleep we've got to figure these things out so it's all in the name of research thank you thank you <laughs> so let's give the listener one thing they could do today yeah. Just to put in action one of the many ideas that we've talked about.
0: Um, if you're a marketer and if you're responsible for a brand is simply, what are the core associations my core consumer says with my brand? And what are the ones I want them to associate with my brand? And do that in a, in a genuine, honest way. So don't bullshit yourself, right? So don't <laughs> write a list of like, these are the 35 things I wish consumers would No. What are you really, what do you stand for? What are the two, three things you stand for in the mind of your consumer? And what are the two or three things you want to stand for in the mind of consumers and then you can map out your plan. If you simplify it at this level, you'd be surprised how difficult it is to answer that question, but how crucial it is to answer that question.
1: Yes, it's easy to say that. It requires a fair amount of work, but I think even more importantly, it requires honesty and humility. Yeah, absolutely. And I just don't want to do that, Uli. No, I'm kidding. No, it's it's so true. It's so true. And getting to that can take some can take some time. But yep. oh, if you can if you can do that, that is that's great. You know the secret of getting ahead is getting started. That's a that's a great answer. Yeah. Looking back, what books have most inspired your work and career, Uli?
0: Um, so I'm the type of person I buy books every week and I never read them. Um, I think I've read somewhere um, I forgot the number. I couldn't find the data anymore. It's like uh, that ninety percent of the books. Um, I only read uh, th- through the first chapter, so initially <laughs> I-, I wondered if I should condense the hundred pages in the first chapter.
1: And then oh, I now I see why you did what you did. Okay, the you course. were writing—you were writing for a reader like yourself.
0: That's right. Um, but no, the, the books that have most—that um, I find the most interesting and inspiring one is a book called *Influence* by uh, Robert. Uh, I think it's Caldini or... Caldini, yeah. yeah. Um, which are basically six principles of uh, human influence drawn from social psychology. Um, and I love this because it really shows you how the human mind works mm-hmm. um, and and you know it's not it's it's applied to some extent to marketing. It's easy to draw similarities to marketing and conclusions but it focuses on sort of like the human nature mm-hmm. um, and the second book is is another book that deals with positioning and I'm, I'm very picky here uh, by a lady called uh, April Dunford uh, called obviously awesome um, the title I know
1: that. of that book yeah
0: it's how to nail product positioning so customers get it buy it and love it um, and she's a very smart very um, uh, experienced strategist I have a lot of respect for her, her focus is more on technology firm and startups mm-hmm um, but the, the 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 insights also she says shares shares in her book are absolutely um, uh, brilliant. So, um, and I say that as a potential competitor. So um, I, I look up to her in, in in the quality of her writing and the content she
1: provides. Oh, wow, yeah, her book has been mentioned by some other authors, and I've been trying to get her, you know, onto the show. So if anybody knows her, <laughs> re- <laughs> please reach out to her and say, hey, come on, that's Knuckleheads uh, show. Robert Cialdini, I've had the honor of interviewing twice, and. Oh wow. He wrote well, the, the more recent book is Pre mm-hmm. And then last year he released the second edition of Influence, mm-hmm. which was the first one was written in nineteen eighty four. It was about two hundred pages. This one was uh four hundred and sixty-four pages, all updated, uh new information. Of course this FMRI you know, there's so much technology out there so, that you can they can really I uh, learned even more about the brain. And it was, it's just a, you know, if, if a marketer only read 10 books, mm-hmm. that should be one of them. I agree with you. And very popular with salespeople as well. Mm-hmm. So, yes, very true. Yeah, great, couple of great recommendations there. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to seeing come out that you may have heard of?
0: Uh, I hate to admit it, Douglas, but my answer is I'm not sure. I don't um, – I, I come across the books more through my LinkedIn feed and through, you know, podcasts and stuff like that. Actually, okay. you, you inspired me. Um, I forgot the name. I was listening to one of your podcasts of a gentleman. Ah, I forgot about um, – it uh, was about expertise. Um,
1: oh, the business of about- expertise.
0: Yes, the David C. Baker. Of, um, I listened to that fascinating. That prompted me to want to buy the book. But you have interviewed him already. So, um, uh, yeah. but but that that I thought was really really again. I, I'm looking for
1: that's you know, a great that really is a great one. Yeah, it, it had a big impact on what I was doing, and yeah, excellent excellent book. That's uh, that's that's fine. You know, it's funny you say you you buy books and don't read them. I don't buy the books, and I do read them, but I'm, I'm probably the only guy because I have this podcast where I get to read books every week. So. I love it. I love it. Yeah, thanks. Well, uh, great to know you're a listener. Um, yes. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable for for the listener, uh, all the books that have been mentioned, your site, your LinkedIn profile, your your Twitter account. And now a word to you, dear listener, I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to uh, Mr. Applebaum and congratulate him on this book. Thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and for putting up with my stupid jokes and German stereotyping. Send him a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or go to his website. Guests on the show have told me that they just love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. It really it's, it's, it makes their day. They don't hear from too many of them, but they love hearing it. And a lot of uh, listeners will have questions or, or, or whatever. But they love hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners and not Uli just because they're ridiculously good-looking people. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. How about a final quote? We live in a world of constant change, a world where self-proclaimed gurus regularly predict the death of marketing and communication as we know it, only to introduce their own new miracle cure, a world where the industry seems to be on the continuous hunt for the latest shiny object. I've witnessed this for over 25 years. I've worked in the field. But strangely enough, During this ongoing quest for new, the quality of the strategic and creative ideas used to grow brands seems to have also declined and marketing has evolved from being a highly strategic discipline to becoming mainly a transactional one. I, on the other hand... Believe in the basics. People will be people, driven by the same needs and wants and triggered by the same stimuli as they always have, even though they will also quickly adapt to their ever-changing environment. The methodology described in this book reflects that belief. The book is The Brand Positioning Workbook, A Simple How-To Guide to More Compelling Brand Positionings Faster. The author is Uli Applebaum. Uli Danka very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast.
0: Vielen Dank, Douglas. It was a pleasure to talk to you and I really appreciate that.
1: And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living, self-education will make you a fortune.